is Friday. I mean, not really. It's Wednesday, but it feels like Friday. It's June 30th. Welcome to this episode of A Real Talk. Uh, tomorrow, July 1st, we will be observing the stat. And then the whole team, we, we looked at each other in the eyes and said, uh, like, we're obviously not coming in on Friday, right? Like, I mean, you know, we're not coming in on Friday. So that means it's a short week for Real Talk. It means that today's show is uh, is going to meet the already raised bar that has been established by uh, producer Sarah Hoyles. What a what a, uh, a show yesterday. Unbelievable. I know that it was a difficult show for some of you to access for a, a large portion of the day. And um, that's directly my fault because uh, our interview with Captain Paul Watson, the founder of Sea Shepherd, unbelievable. Uh, and, and by the way, Brent Butt, founder, star, executive producer, legend behind Corner Gas, also on the show yesterday. Amazing. The podcasted episode of Real Talk for Tuesday, June 29th contains the entire conversation. The YouTube version, which when you look at it, you're like yesterday, several of you emailed in and said, where's why are you shut down? What happened with YouTube? Here's basically what happened. I was like, we've got to show video of Captain Paul Watson and the Sea Shepherd ships ramming poachers. We have to show it. These guys that are out there poaching whales and dolphins and, and, and dragging these massive nets. And, and, well, you, you listen to the interview. You'll know what we're talking about, especially on the podcast. But also, there's nothing like there's nothing like a video of of huge ocean vessels. What did he say? How, how much did he say that they weighed? Yes, it wasn't something like it was something wild, like 700,000 tons. Or he said some number that was I couldn't even wrap my mind around it. Yeah. 700 something it was like seven, it was yeah, some, some some multiple of that some yeah. number where you're like you know it doesn't really gosh, matter because you can't even fathom. you can't even yeah, process exactly. it I'm, yeah. like, I'm like that weighs even more than me after a year of pandemic eating <laughs> like, which is like just an enormous amount of um fat shaming is okay if it's you if it's okay if right. it's you um so anyway but i'm like we have to show video because there's nothing quite like in the on the on the angry open ocean these two ships just ramming into one another and uh, Sarah and Sam both were like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And they're like, For, yeah. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then sure enough, right away, psh, YouTube was like, nope. And Discovery Channel didn't like it. And, and we had to cut the episode up and repost it. And it was a huge hassle. And it's all on me. But I've got to say that interview, especially the one with Paul Watson, Brett Butt was cool and great. And there was great insight from other guests. But I just Paul had our had our our undivided attention for about 45 minutes yesterday which was very cool so make sure you check that out uh, today's show of course is presented by the team at bitcoin well as is the case each and every morning the team at bitcoin wells got a lot on their plate right now they've got this big downtown location they're getting set to move into something like thirty thousand square feet it's a former grocery store to give you an idea so that so that side is growing and then they're going public, which is also a really big deal. And then, of course, they, like everybody else, is, I mean, they're working to manage and understand and maximize the potential of these big swings. And the crypto market right now is all over the place. If you're trying to make sense of it, you want it explained in plain language. Trust me, if I can understand it, you'll be able to understand it from the team at Bitcoin. Well, you'll find them under the sponsors page at RyanJesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. I'm not sure what you do or what your morning routine is, but uh, for me, one of the first things I do when I wake up is, uh, and maybe this is somewhat 
unfortunate. This wouldn't have been the way that it always was. But when I wake up, I I check to see what's going on on Twitter. Like if all hell is breaking loose and and if we need to change who we're talking to on the shore, we need to reflect a story that's that's developing. We, we need to make sure. So I was up early today. I was up really early today, somewhat heat related uh, in the five o'clock hour, which is not always ideal. And I thought, OK, well, let's take a look, take a spin at what's going on. And I see it's somewhat unusual that that a number is trending. Now, numbers have been trending recently for really heartbreaking reasons. Uh, for infuriating reasons, we're going to be talking to journalist Anna McKenzie in just a moment from Indigenous News. That's where she's written this piece on what settlers can do, or what non-Indigenous people can do right now in the spirit of reconciliation. I know that this is something that a lot of people are talking about in processing leading up to tomorrow, July 1st, Canada Day, or or if you're in Alberta Freedom Day, as it's being called, (laughs) Freedom Day. Hey, it's an improvement. It it was Dominion Day from Alberta's premier last year. Now he's calling it Freedom Day. Maybe by next year, he'll call it what everybody else calls it. Maybe he'll call it Canada Day next year. We don't know. But some people are you can deny it all you like. July 1st is going to be a huge day for a lot of people based on. I mean, it has nothing to do with Canada Day for a lot of people. July 1st, the mask mandate drops in some municipalities, some jurisdictions. Um, you know, Alberta opens up again. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm saying all you can hear it in my voice. I'm a little cautious. I am. I can to, hear the air quotes. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but but there are there are business owners and restaurateurs and people and, and those eager to socialize and, and, and those that that already feel like not feel like. Everybody that lost last summer, in a way, I'm being dramatic, the summer still happened. People still made great memories, but it was different. You know, you're now into the stages of where you've got people celebrating birthdays that have now sacrificed two birthday parties in a row. Right. The pandemic's gone for more than 12 months. So I'm just saying there is exhaustion. People are sick of it now. You know, you're going to write in someone right now on Twitter is going to say, Jesperson, you hey, listen, but we've come this far. And what are you talking about? And it's too soon. And but please, let's ease back. And I just want to see my grandma. And I don't need to go to the stampede. And why are you using the hey, I'm just saying a lot of people for a lot of people. July 1st is big because they can finally get back on the patio or play Frisbee golf. And there's going to be that element of normalcy again. Maybe they get the softball team back together. Well, there's that there's this great video. Um, It's like a little teeny tiny meme where a lady sings um, the pandemic is not over just because you're over it. Yeah. And uh, so, yes, I realized July 1st. I don't think that's any mistake that that's when the mask mandate drops. There's no, there's no, well, I was going to say there's no mistakes in politics. There's plenty of mistakes in politics, (laughs) but but there's no decisions on timing made without due consideration. Mm. I mean, you think it was a mistake that cannabis was legalized on the anniversary of Gord Downey's passing? I don't think so. There's another one. Interesting one for you. Whoa, I didn't even consider that. But I think you're right. I think that the, I think that the the Alberta government and and Alberta's premier was, I mean, I don't, I think politically it's an astute move to tie it to July 1st. I think, I think that part makes sense. I mean, you start calling it Freedom Day is an interesting one, but whatever. There's other things to get upset about. And I mean, last summer, people can say that they lost last summer, but I would say that people gained last summer because people were outside actually like... Well, that's because you're an optimist. Okay. Yeah. Which is, that's a compliment. Is it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're you're an optimist working in media, which is, <laughs> which is a little bit, uh, you know... <laughs> Potentially problematic, uh, very problematic. We we expect a certain degree of cynicism, a healthy cynicism to drive our editorial process. So back to me sweating. This is just a bad image at 540 in the morning. 
waking up, <gasps> checking Twitter. And uh, on the serious side, I see the numbers that have been trending over the past few weeks. 215, 751, 180, 183. Like th- these numbers, I mean, <laughs> we all know what they are. I don't even have to provide context. They've been they've been heartbreaking. And, and for some people, conceptually, absolutely uh, I mean, people's, you know, nuclear bombs are going off in people's minds when it comes to their perception of their understanding of what Canada has been. What an amazing conversation yesterday uh, with Fatima Syed, who joined us uh, 10 years ago. She and her family immigrated here from Pakistan. She's written a, a wonderfully moving piece in Chatelaine, and she joined us to talk about it, um, explaining how her understanding of Canada and and now the way that she's processing her role here as a Canadian, as a Muslim woman, as an immigrant. I mean, just really powerful stuff. I really appreciated her, her, the statement that she said that it's because she loves. Yes. Canada. She said as a proud Canadian. That's what it was. In talking about her plans for Canada Day. Mm-hmm. Right. She says as a proud Canadian. And then what she, she said, basically, I'm going to ask people to reflect and take pause. And no. Well, yes. Yes. But it was. So poignant. I'm just going to pull. Well, my point just being that she didn't say she didn't imply that the only way to be a proud Canadian tomorrow is to blast off a bunch of fireworks. Right. It's because I love this country that I'm not celebrating it. Hmm. Yeah. Not my words, but Fatima. Yeah. So we're going to be getting to some of your emails today. Sometimes you just want to let a comment like that just simmer for a sec. Um. Mick Fury's written in. I'm going to share a photo from them about what their family's doing with their Canada flag tomorrow. It's not disrespectful. As a matter of fact, I think it's beautiful. Um, why don't I just show it now? Sam, do you care? Can I just show this now? Yeah, we can We can pivot. Um, we'll get to Anna McKenzie in just a quick second here, and then, and then I'll finish my thought on the numbers. But this is what the McFury family's doing um, for tomorrow. They call it, this is our flag thinly veiled. Uh, if you're listening on the podcast, I'll, I'll describe it for you uh mcfury says uh when we put up our flag this year for canada day we added an orange veil in front of it you can still see the maple leaf you can still see the flag it's a powerful image says my children aged 11 and 13 understood the meaning and the symbolism it conveyed no longer can we pretend our nation is perfect it is veiled by the pain and suffering of victims and survivors of cultural genocide When we store the flag on Friday, the veil will go with it. And this will be our display every year from now on. That from Smickfury. We've got some other emails uh, from you about Canada Day and tomorrow and, and how you will observe it or not, whether or not you will cancel it, so to speak. Some of the things you're wrestling with. A couple of those emails are in trash talk, which is coming early today. Of course, because this is the last show of our broadcast week. Uh, Before we check in with Anna McKenzie, I want to remind you that this show and the hashtag Real Talk RJ is powered by the team at Park Power. If you visit their website right now, parkpower.ca, not only will you get some great tips on how to manage this heat and approach it from from their perspective they got information on things like rolling blackouts and and your own energy sustainability and security within your own four walls i mean really great resources on the website at parkpower.ca also the promo code 2021-realtalk gets you 70 dollars off your first bill commercial or residential electricity internet and natural gas with park power 
The team at Alta Storage is ready to take the stress out of your move this summer. They've got these pod-style moving containers. These are the ones that everybody is is so grateful for. When it, you know, you remember back in the day when they'd have these big 18-wheelers idling outside your home, and you're trying to get it loaded up as quickly as possible because it's oh, it's an inconvenience for the whole neighborhood. And, and never mind the fact that. You don't even really get to say goodbye to your house. You're rush, rush, rushing, not with Alta moving and storage. You move at your convenient pace. They accommodate the plan that you want to make to keep you happy at altastorage.ca. Make sure you let them know that Real Talk sent you. Also, a big shout out to the team at coming up. I mean, positive reflections on Monday. You know this is coming up. This is kind of how we start our our week off on the right foot. Mondays is going to be great. Some of you are already sending in your emails to talk at ryanjesperson.com where you're finding your joy these days. What's filling your bucket, so to speak? Check this out. I love this from their Instagram account. This was posted uh, just yesterday's. I mean, the future is now, friends. This is the uh, Tesla Model S. What is it, Sam? The Founders Edition? Founders Edition. The Founders, the Founders Series, pardon me. The Founders Series. Mm. I wonder what that comes with that the other Tesla... Because the Model S is kind of like the sexy... That's the sedan that you want to... Elon built it himself. Elon built it himself. He actually turned the wrenches. Yeah. That's in his spare time. Right. There you have it. This Tesla powered by the solar installation behind it. Look at that. This is Kubi Energy making it happen. Of course, they're Tesla certified. You can learn more about what that means at kubienergy.ca. We keep it real here on the show, and you do too, audience members, and that's why your emails have always meant so much to us, because you, you cut through all the BS, and you tell us how you're feeling, what's on your heart. Many of you have communicated with us that this July 1st obviously feels differently to you, and you're trying to find meaningful ways to communicate that, to observe that, respecting indigenous people. In respecting your fellow Canadians and, and, of course, respecting the moment the nation finds itself in right now. In a way, it's the subject matter of a piece just published by journalist Anna McKenzie for Indigent News. We're going to get into it here. Non-Indigenous people is what you can do right now. Anna is a journalist with APTN and Indigent News. And joins us now out in is you're you're in uh, is this Nunaimuk? Is that Nanaimo, BC, where we're talking to you from this morning, Anna? Yeah, I'm speaking to you today from the unceded homelands of this Nanaimo First Nation, also known as Nanaimo, BC. Thank you so much for making time for us. You you tweeted uh, in in promoting your appearance on this show, which we appreciate, uh, that this was actually going to be your first moment of uh, offering a public comment um, since the discovery, uh, or rather, let me say the specifics of these uh, heartbreaking discoveries, uh, the Cowessess First Nation making the announcement 751 uh, unmarked graves of children near a residential school. Have, have Your first media appearance today, is that intentional in a sense? Have you, have you been taking pause? Have you been taking a moment? How have you personally been processing this? Well, it's been a really difficult um, couple of days, and I've definitely just taken the time to give myself and my family some space, um, not to put the pressure on for writing stories. Um, hearing the news out of the Cowessess First Nation, it just was re-traumatizing all over again in the same way um, the news was out of the Kamloops Indian Residential School out of the um, Kamloops area. So, um, yeah, there's just a lot of... Um, 
like just terror and re-traumatization in my own family and really hard memories coming to the surface and a lot of truth telling. So it's just been really important for me to make space for that. And I have three little kids as well. So they're always my priority. And so I've just been attempting to focus on self-care and um, caring for my little ones. And um, the heat has just made us all just kind of take pause and to just stop. Like we actually can't really do anything other than, you know, go swim in the river, which has been really lovely. Yeah. Um, but I'm, you know, I've been gearing up to to getting back to writing and back to my work today. Hmm. Well, we're grateful for your time and, and looking forward to hearing your perspective. You're so right about that heat. I think there's this, this um, you know, there's there's the pandemic that obviously is contributing to, to some, you know, ability to move or gather or get out and, and, and the hesitation and even the physicality of the, the what, what a mask does with regards to. I don't know, overall psyche, I, I think, and, and, and even the, uh, an outward display of emotion. And then you've got the heat and then you've got this 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 slow. I say this respectfully, uh, uh, this slow drip of 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 heartbreaking headlines, one after the other after the other. And, and I almost feel like some are overshadowing others. In other words, that if it just becomes a numbers game, people aren't realizing and recognizing. And, I'm, and, I, and I think most people do, I hope. But like, these are names. These are children. These are people. These are human beings, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. And all of this culminating in, in a sense of, I, I feel like everybody is just on their heels a little bit, regardless of, of perspective or background. Many people experiencing this in so many different ways. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really great analogy, a slow drip. And um, people have been reaching out to me asking what they can do and what am I going to do because the news isn't going to stop anytime soon. There are over 100 former residential schools in Canada and, you know, we've got day schools, Indian hospitals, um, you know, the continuation of the horrors in the child welfare system. So there's a lot of work um, to be done right now in terms of unpacking the long history that Canada has um, with colonization and perpetuating genocide on Indigenous people. So it's not just an outward, you know, reconciliation, it's an internal reconciliation thing as well. I feel like a lot of Canadians are, um, for the first time, having their identity shaken to its core. And with this truth sharing, there's a lot of people that are looking for answers. What what can I do? How, how come I didn't know? Um, did, did the education system fail us? And so that sort of prompted um, Jacqueline Ronson at the discourse and myself to just do a quick turnaround story. Here's seven things that you can do as a non-Indigenous person, as a settler Canadian, as a newcomer to Canada. Here's seven things that you can do right now to step up to support Indigenous people in a good way. Because we have the infrastructure in place already to support our people. We definitely, you know, need all the support we can get during this time. But this is not new for us. Um, we've known about unmarked grave sites um, at former residential schools. They've been spoken within our families. Um, you know, they've been shared with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It's one of the calls to action. So this is not new for us, mm -hmm. um, but it is new, I feel like, for a lot of Canadians. Yeah, I think you're right, or, or at least the specifics. I, I think that, you know, we've heard, uh, if I can sort of summarize you know, dozens or hundreds of emails into one sentiment. It's that I, I think I knew about residential schools in the sense that there is an ugly part to Canada's history. I've, I've heard people talk about them. I, th I think I knew that there had been allegations of abuse and that some children had died. But I think that that 
you know, generally speaking, non-Indigenous people in Canada are saying we had no idea that it was like in the hundreds per location, unmarked, calloused, like sort of buried out in the soccer field type idea. I think that that has been far from a revelation for indigenous people. I mean, I, uh, Ian Hannah Mansing, a, a good friend of mine and a remarkable journalist for, for CBC, the national spoke with the chief Calus's first nation. He said, I mean, it's, I recommend everybody watch that interview. Um, chief out there said, he said, Hey, as kids, we were told to stay on the pathways like that, that this was, uh, th- there were graves here. And, uh, and that was known. Uh, but even they did not know. He said, we suspected, he said that he was mentally preparing himself and I don't know if you saw that interview, but he said they bought surveyors tape or these little flags to mark the graves as they took the ground radar. And he said they bought 300 of them because that's sort of where he had estimated that the number would stop. And he said that they realized very early looking at the square meters they were covering. They ran out of flags. I mean, when he told that story, I just my heart just shattered, um, yeah. you know, on this, though. Here you are. And we'll talk about these seven things that you've identified that non-indigenous people can do and it's an amazing thing that you've done and i'm grateful for it and we will all benefit from hearing this from you but there's also i want to have really meaningful conversation with you about the assertion that it's not up to indigenous people to help non-indigenous people process their feelings and understand this right now it puts a real uh you talk about re-traumatizing i mean it puts a real stress or potential stress on survivors and storytellers elders and the like Yeah, absolutely. So the intergenerational trauma that a lot of people are feeling right now, a lot of Indigenous people are feeling right now, it's palpable. And, it, you know, it. we're working, I know um, I can speak for myself, I'm working through a lot. And there's often this saying that um, we are the seventh generation or we are the eighth fire. And um, I've just had to come to the realization that, you know, actually, no, I'm not the seventh generation. I'm the second because my dad went to residential school. Both my grandparents on my father's side went to residential school. Um, My grandpa also survived a sanatorium um, and survived tuberculosis and had one lung. So there's a lot of these stories that, you know, we've told internally within our own families that have caused me a lot of vicarious trauma. And I'm trying to unpack and do the work so I don't pass on a lot of that hardship um, to my children. But what I'm really grappling with right now is how am I going to have those conversations with my little ones? who are eight, four, and two. How do I explain to them at some point in their lives that this is something that their grandpa has gone through um, and their great aunties and uncles? Um, and similarly with here on our home territories um, in Sanemo, there's um, a lot of um, you know intergenerational trauma that's been caused by an Indian hospital. And there's a number of residential schools here on Vancouver Island. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done in terms of healing. And so it's really important for non-Indigenous people to understand um, how they can support in a good way that's not taxing on our energy during this time. Um, Anna, another another one for you to keep an eye on. I'm, sh- I'm sure it's on your radar already, but um, Lorelai Mullings uh, from Enoch Cree Nation has just, just recently in the past number of hours at the site of the former Charles Camsell Hospital uh, which saw many Inuit patients over the years. I mean, there's there's really, really a dark history with the Capsule Hospital. Um, she's just set up a protest there. There's currently a development going on there, and she's said that she wants to see uh, meaningful uh, action here with regards to a stop work order and investigation there. So that's another one uh, to keep an eye on right here in, in our, you know, Treaty 7 in, in, in Edmonton right now. Let's talk about your piece 
I mean, there's really valuable perspectives here on I think is tomorrow and July 1st on Canada Day. A lot of people are going to be uh, looking for meaningful ways to express how they're feeling right now. And I think that you've provided a great resource. Again, uh, we're referencing your piece at indigenews.com. Shall we go through these one by one? Why don't we? Why don't I tee up the first thing you say that that we can do? We've talked to the remarkable team uh, at the uh, the Indian Residential School Survivors Society. Just an absolutely um, unbelievable I mean, what they've been doing over the past number of decades is remarkable, but especially important, I think, right now. You say that the the biggest thing people can do, or at least number one on your list, is to donate to organizations supporting survivors and their families. Yeah, like like I mentioned, we have the infrastructure to be able to um, support folks that are needing um, that extra guidance during this really difficult time, Indigenous people that are experiencing trauma or re-traumatization. So I think the quickest thing that people can do is just to donate. If you're wanting something very quickly to take action, um, donating to those organizations that are providing the culturally and trauma-informed supports that our people need right now. Uh, Your second one, I think, is... uh is uh, an assignment that I think many people are, are taking uh, meaningfully right now, which is to simply learn about, to educate yourself about the residential school system and its ongoing impacts. And I like that you clarify that. Yeah, our education system in Canada has failed us. So it's up to us. It's up to Canadians right now to really um, leverage this moment in time and to learn about the um, um, 94 calls to action of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, This came out in 2015. There was a lot, a lot, a lot of hard work um, and stories shared by survivors um, to put together this document. So really there's just so much information there that people can engage with. And there's a child-friendly version as well. Um, Cindy Blackstock mentioned it, but there is, um, I believe on the First Nations Caring Society website, you can um, find uh, resources for being able to have a child-friendly version to walk through those calls to action. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Sharon's right, by the way, keeping me on my toes here, pointing out (laughs) quite rightfully so. Uh, Sharon, I think I've done 150 land acknowledgements with events I've hosted. Treaty 6 territory, of course, in Edmonton uh, hosted an event where Treaty 7 acknowledgement in Calgary over the weekend. Regardless, uh, number three, call on your MP. Your member of parliament, I'm going to include, you say, other elected representatives. I'm going to include uh, your members of the legislative assembly regarding, uh, and of course, municipal uh, representatives as well, regarding taking action. Uh, what specifically would you like to see? The, you know, a, a focused uh, correspondence to elected officials. What would it look like? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. Hmm. Uh- Yeah, to fulfill the calls to action of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, at this time, supporting nations that are wanting to seek um, the bodies of children near um, former residential schools, day schools, Indian hospitals, um, putting more support into um, funding for resources, for counseling, et cetera, um, to support our people during this time. But as a child welfare reporter and former outreach worker for Indigenous youth in care, um, I think that supporting our young people that are bearing the brunt of um, this intergenerational trauma and colonization the most really, really need our support. So calling on um, your elected representatives to address the overrepresentation of Indigenous children um, in the foster care system, because there's a lot of um, data and there's a lot um, of information that really connects um, 
the foster care system being the new residential school system. You, uh, for those that are watching this on YouTube, and, and we'll sort of describe it for everybody that's going to listen to this on the podcast, but you've included this graph in in your information. Again, people can check out indigenews.com. But, but I mean, Anna, this is striking. You know, 7.7%, that would be the representation of, of Indigenous children in Canada's child population. This is according to Census in 2016, by the way. These numbers are about five years old. But when it comes to children in foster care, uh, you reiterate here, you point out to us that it's it's more than half, more than 52 percent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my home province, my home territory in Manitoba, it's actually closer to 80 percent. Wow. There's a lot of um, connections as to why that is. Um, a lot of it's linked to poverty, um, intergenerational trauma. Um, that are directly linked from residential schools. So we're still in the thick of it right now with having our um, children apprehended um, and growing up in non-Indigenous homes. Amazing. If you're just tuning in, if you're streaming this live on the Mixler audio app, we're talking to journalist Anna McKenzie, uh, her piece, Non-Indigenous People. Here's what you can do right now. And she, she gives us seven things that we can focus on. Donate. Uh, learn about the school system, school system, fuck that, L- whatever you want to call this. It was not a school system. Number three, call in your MP and other elected representatives. Number four, demand action from the Catholic Church. There's talk that there could be an apology from the Pope later this summer. What would you like to see at a local level? What would you like to see from the Vatican? Oh, I mean, just apologize, like. I don't I know a lot of people's faith is really um, shaken to its core right now, but I just don't understand why a meaningful apology would be so hard to achieve. I know there's a convoy of Indigenous leadership heading over to the Vatican um, to continue to put pressure. Um, But for those in the Indigenous community that um, have faith, I just I feel like it would just be so meaningful and a step in the right direction. Um, And that just being a first step um, moving forward, uh, the church needs to really step up in terms of um, supporting First Nations, uh, Métis and Inuit people. Um, truth sharing, um, as well as um, support in locating our our children that are missing. Anna, do you have a? Um, I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here, but I'm, we we were talking yesterday about the number of arsons uh, that uh, police are investigating, RCMP are investigating right now, specifically uh, Catholic churches or houses of worship. Uh, others have been, uh, if you want to say defaced, I think there's a very powerful graffiti. I'm going to call it an art installation on a Catholic church in Saskatoon that read, we were children. Uh, what's your take on that? I, I really go back and forth, to be honest. Like I remember the very first time I went um, to the Kamloops um, Indian, former Kamloops Indian Residential School, I went there for work and had a meeting and didn't know that it was a residential school and went into the basement and was like in the middle of this meeting when I found out and just, I remember the first thing I thought about was like, I want to burn this place to the ground. Like that anger was just so real living yeah. in my living within my body. So when when I read that um, churches are burning down, the part of me um, feels like a sense, like a, a sense of reconciliation or like a sense of healing. But um, I do know that there are people in the Indigenous community that have faith and those places are um, spaces of faith um, for them and um, where they draw strength from. So for me, I'm, I kind of ping Paul 
ping pong ball back and forth. Like what, what is the right thing to do? And yeah, it's, it's, it's horrible. I'm glad that nobody got hurt, but at the same time, there's, there's something to burning it to the ground. Anna McKenzie, um, with seven, can I call them calls to action? Why not? I like it. The calls to action for non-Indigenous people in Canada. Uh, prioritize the safety of survivors and their families when sharing this story and others like it. I so appreciate that our conversation today began on a really personal note. Um, I'm so appreciative that you shared with us how your family has been taking time to to make space here. What does that look like in the bigger picture of prioritizing safety of survivors and families when discussing or sharing stories like this? Yeah, just making sure that whoever you're speaking with, if they have, um, you know, if they're sharing part of their story with you, making sure they have a care plan support system, um, checking in with them afterwards. This is especially true um, for journalists who are seeking and asking questions about the residential school. Um, there are lots of stories already in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's reports that can be drawn upon rather than um, re-traumatizing folks. But there are people that want to share their stories and it's really, really important right now because um, there are a lot of people that are um, relapsing or um, re-entering their trauma that have been triggered by these recent um, discoveries. Um, so yeah, just making sure that there's a care plan and that you're able to check in um, with people afterwards and um, and sharing those resources, those um, critical phone numbers that um, are on call 24-7 for people that need that extra support. Um, as mentioned, I spoke with Fatima Syed yesterday. She's vice president of the Canadian Association of Journalists. And we talked about the, the onus on journalists to, um, in some circumstances, completely, um, I mean, adopt new principles or new understandings around trauma-based reporting. For some journalists, especially maybe earlier in their careers, this will be a first. Um, how would you assess how Canada's, I mean, it's, it's a big wide swath I'm asking you to comment on, but how have Canada's journalists and storytellers been doing with this? Well, Kelsey Kilana, who's my colleague at Indigenews, um, has really, really taken a leadership role in this. Um, she has relations that went to the Kamloops Indian Residential School. Um, so she's developing a trauma-informed reporting um, I guess, guide because it feels like the entire media world has been knocking on our door asking us how to we how do we report um, on this in a good way. So all of a sudden the world needs um, trauma informed reporting um, from Indigenous, from an Indigenous lens, from an Indigenous storytellers lens. Um, and it just so happens that leading up to this, our newsroom uh, became quite a bit smaller due to funding cuts. So it's you know, fallen on the shoulders of Kelsey, of myself, um, of our managing editor, Emily Gilpin, um, and Athena Bono. So we've, you know, we've been trying to, I guess, piece together um, information to, you know, give out to journalists. And um, I actually, somebody, um, a reporter from the New York Times, I've been consulting with, like, how to report on this issue. And that really goes back to, in my mind, the, the real disconnect and lack of education that people just have about Indigenous peoples in so-called Canada. Like there is just like this huge gap, um, this huge disconnect. And um, we need to be having really um, culturally informed, trauma-informed conversations um, that are uplifting Indigenous peoples and Indigenous voices without re-traumatizing us and um, having the narrative be that we are um, only defined by our hardship and only defined by our trauma. 
That's such a great point. Uh, one of our audience members saying too, we need we need more indigenous people in visible and prominent roles in media, uh, telling these stories, uh, which I think everyone would agree with. Um, six and seven work well together, I think, uh, most especially when it comes to people that are going to gather tomorrow, people that are going to be together tomorrow. Uh, in your piece, to wrap it up, uh, you know, talk to non-indigenous friends, family, and children about the residential school system and its ongoing impacts, and attend memorial events where non-indigenous people are invited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are events happening right now. They're not anti-Canada Day protests. They're events to gather um, for Canadians to show support for indigenous people during this time of collective grief. Um, I think it's really important. This is a moment in time where people can really um, take that this one day and um, to showcase in solidarity that um, we're all grieving this together. And um, I just think it would be a really great show of um, support. I love that Canadian flag with the um, orange veil over top of it. I think that mm. sentiments like that are so meaningful um, because for me, I actually... Um, I'm dreading Canada Day tomorrow. I'm dreading fireworks. I'm dreading people that are going to be celebrating while, you know, we're, I'm sitting here with all of this trauma and my family sitting here with all of this trauma um, in this heat. So I think there's going to be a lot of healing work that will be happening tomorrow. But just so Canadians know, there's also going to be a lot of pain. So I've put out a personal appeal on my social media channels to just, um, to just take the time to bear witness to this grief and collectively let's move forward in a good way. I'm uh, honored to have uh, welcomed you to the show today. I'm so grateful for your perspective. It really means a lot to us. Um, and uh, you're speaking from a, a position, obviously, of um, a firsthand experience. You yourself as an indigenous woman, as a journalist, as a, a future lawyer, by the way, uh, as a mom, as as a granddaughter. I mean, all all of these things um, have, have really I mean, you, you've uh, you've got a real way of, I, I think, you know, pushing people in a direction um, in very compelling fashion. And I think right now people are looking for that and I can feel it. And people are telling us that and they're sending us emails saying that like people, some people literally, Anna, it's been amazing. We'll get e emails from people that are one line that just say my heart is, you know, the, the subject line will say like two fifteen or seven fifty one or something. And it will just say, my heart is broken. What can I do? And that mm -hmm. to me is like your piece at indigenous dot com is is one that just that, that speaks right to it and i'm grateful for it and i'm thankful that you've joined us this morning hi hi thank you so much for having me to to share you bet you can follow anna uh that's anna mckenzie on social media just uh you can take a look at of course the real talk rj twitter account it's brand new by the way uh thanks to those of you that have followed for those of you that haven't make sure you you follow that. That account is maintained by our editorial producer, Sarah Hoyles, who uses it to provide updates on the show, uh, content, highlights, links and, and the like. And um, and of course, you can follow Anna uh, based on that link. Some of you have been talking about the Catholic Church that was burned down last night in Morinville, Alberta. I'll credit the CBC here. If you're watching us on YouTube, you can see this photo. This was the uh, Catholic Church in Morinville, Alberta, uh, relatively close to Edmonton. Uh, burned to the ground last night. A number of arsons across the country, in particular, it seems uh, in Western Canada, um, but a number of arsons over the past week or two. And uh, it's prompted an email from an audience member, Lorne, who I happen to know is a retired fire chief. 
and uh, Lauren's got a big heart and uh, a proud first responder for a lot of years, saved a lot of lives in and outside of the fire hall. He says, quick rant. The arson of Catholic churches is a strong message toward an institution that must be held accountable. The Morinville church fire, however, shows how dangerous these arsons can be. The first responders, nearby residents in a senior's lodge, the potential loss of nearby places of business. This all places first responders, including firefighters and residents in danger of injury or death and has a huge economic impact on the community. This is an unacceptable response to an emotional situation and must be stopped. That from Lorne, a real talker and one of our audience members. We talked about this yesterday. Uh, boy, was it ever a powerful comment from Captain Paul Watson when we talked to him about this. The, the founder of Sea Shepherd, I asked him, I said, by the way, I mean, when it comes to civil disobedience and when it comes to and, and I know that I know how you know political leaders certain ones in particular would respond to this and they would not be wrong they would not be wrong to say that's arson arson is in the criminal code this is a property that belongs to a, a faith institution this is a house of worship this is sacred this is that and, and they would go on and none of these points would be wrong and I, as a talk show host, certainly cannot go on a public platform and start talking about how it's OK to burn down buildings and to burn down churches. You just can't. It's the same reason you don't put the, the name and address up of a of a convicted pedophile or sex offender and sick the masses on them. Although you may very well want to do exactly that. You just don't. You can't condone that sort of a vigilante approach to it. But what you sure as hell can do is have a conversation about trauma and grief and fury and anger and symbolism and institutions and the patriarchy and racism and the human emotional response to all of these things. We can talk about that all day long and captain watson yesterday talking about you know arson aimed at totem poles a century or so ago i thought was a powerful and poignant moment you can find that interview i recommend it on our podcast thanks to those of you that subscribe and that rate our podcast uh, that'll be the full interview that you'll see unfortunately due to my error yesterday on our youtube version of that interview we had to pull out a big huge chunk uh, because there were some video highlights there that, that we did not have the license to use though we did credit the provider of that video still our bad my bad my bad decision so our youtube from yesterday's show only will show a portion of that interview i recommend the podcast interview powerful stuff from captain paul watson you can let me know how you're feeling about anything that you hear here on the show as mentioned sometimes like this email from lauren i just got about the church fire that's up to the minute that's happening right now lauren emails us we can get it live on the show sometimes i understand you're going to walk with things a little bit you know, maybe you're hearing this podcast while you're walking the dog or you're laying in the shade, or maybe this is, you know, July 15th that you're hearing this. We still want to hear from you to talk at RyanJesperson.com. We check our emails on computers that are provided by the team at Westworld Computers. They've been with us since day one, ensuring that our studio is resourced in the way that it needs to be. The show moves fast. So must our horsepower. 
So the iPads and the MacBook Pros and the iMacs and the iPhones and everything else that's in here from the team that's been providing great customer service, sales obviously as well for more than 40 years, still family owned at Westworld Computers. They'll ship anywhere in Canada. You can check out more details about ordering online or booking your service appointment at westworld.ca. Wanted to remind you that the team at Grand Dog Essentials, well, they, they have a special role with us here on the show because we feed our family members, our furry four-legged family members, food, quality raw food from Grand Dog Essentials. As you can see, they deliver weekly to Metro Calgary and Edmonton areas, Central Alberta as well. You can find out more information on their team of nutritionists and what they can do for your pup's health by visiting granddog.ca. The promo code REALTALK will get you 10% off your first time order. We also wanted to remind you that the team at Campers Village... The team at Campers Village has their summer sale on right now. And at Campers Village, that means that you can save up to 40% on the top outdoor gear on the market. It runs through till July 11th, so you've got just ah, just less than two weeks left. But why wait? You wouldn't want your favorite stuff from Icebreaker and Mountain Hardware and Yeti and Osprey and Patagonia and the North Face and everybody else. You want want it to sell out, would you? With 40% off, you know these deals aren't going to last forever. You can equip yourself to get outside by visiting campers-village.com. And of course, a little later on in today's show, we're going to be getting outside, so to speak, with our friends at Tourism Jasper. That's coming up. This next segment is uh, a spinoff. I love how this stuff works. Sarah Hoyles, uh, what was it? I, I mean, I guess it was a short time ago. We started ta- we, we were talking about uh, the, the, the digital, uh, when it comes to like the digital undertaker and yeah. Sharon Hartung, who joined us on, on June 22nd. And, and it was fascinating because we started talking about, I mean, I thought it was just going to be a conversation about what happens to our Twitter account or, or what Which happens? I found very interesting. Yeah, yeah, it was really interesting, wasn't it? But our online footprint, mm. whether that's like banking or our LinkedIn or those types of things, what happens when we die? And that's what I thought that I, I, I think I had really sort of narrowed. I needed to broaden my scope of what Sharon Hartung is a, a digital undertaker is all about. But that conversation blew the doors off what we're about to get into here. Mm-hmm. This is really neat. Yeah. I mean, really, it's about you know, facing death and kind of all of its implications. Uh, It's scary for some folks. It's a relief for others. Um, It's a bit of both for others. So uh, trying to, I mean, the suggestion was death doulas. And I had never heard of such a thing. Um, Or end of life doula, depending on on how you refer to yourself. Yeah. And uh, it's, uh, you know, helping with that transition. So sure, we've got our digital undertaker to do the to do the the Twitters and the Facebooks to handle the the to do list, the details. That's right. But then to actually do the transition um, yourself, if you know if it's end of life yeah. or if it's someone that you love, helping is, with that transition. So then, so then we start talking about we go death doulas. I didn't realize that death doulas were a thing, and then we start going. Okay, but hang on. But what if we got like a doula, like a birth doula and a death doula? A doula duel. And we had a, we were going to plan a doula duel. And then we found out that there's such thing as a postpartum doula. And so our Friday roundtable on a Wednesday today, our Real Talk roundtable welcomes, I'm so looking forward to this conversation with Shannon Spruill, Sonia Duffy, and Tracy Chalmers. So here's the deal, okay? 
so so Sonia Sonia Duffy's the founder of Full Circle Birth Collective and Postpartum Care in Edmonton, Alberta. She's a labor and postpartum doula who has attended. Get this, more than a thousand births. Shannon Sproul has been a postpartum doula for the last five years and has served dozens of families in the Edmonton area. She's an expert in perinatal mental health. And Tracy Chalmers is out of Vancouver this morning, an end of life doula. Her work encourages conversations around acknowledging and engaging with death. I am so grateful at the the the, the wide i mean the, think of the perspectives we're going to get on this this is going to be amazing shannon why don't we begin with you welcome to the show you're the the doula business you're 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 a guide in a sense you're a beacon in a way you're a counselor what what drew you to this is is this more a calling than a job uh yeah thanks for having me ryan um absolutely it's a very passionate uh piece of my life um, what called me to it was my own experience in the postpartum. Uh, after I had my son, I struggled with some postpartum anxiety. And uh, once I was able to seek some support from my uh, medical professionals and peers, recognized that uh, the, the gap in the system was quite significant when it came to supporting postpartum families. Um, and so I started to seek out if I could support in some way. And I was very fortunate to uh, cross paths with Sonia, who is a facilitator for an organization that trains doulas. And so I took a training about, yeah, just over five years ago, six or seven years ago, I guess. And then, yeah, um, yeah, that was kind of the start of the journey. And it kind of just took off from there. Yeah, I, I really appreciate when people describe their careers as journeys, uh, because I really feel that they are that way. And there are so many parallels. Sonia, what drew you to it? Do you describe yourself as a labor doula, a birth doula? What do you say? I usually use the term labor doula. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, it just, um, birth is such a powerful time. It's such a intimate, raw, primal experience. And, um, I think that as, as doulas, like being able to witness that and to support and care is a huge part of that. Again, I'll say journey, um, into parenthood. Now, Tracy, uh, Shannon and Sonia's work um, for the now I'll acknowledge there can be um, complications and I'll acknowledge there can be heartbreak around pregnancies as well. I mean, our family has experienced it personally. It's not always, but it is often wonderful. Um, Death can have beautiful angles to it in a way, celebrations of life and legacies and things like that. But but your calling is a little bit different, isn't it? As a death doula, what a fascinating line of work. Yeah. Um, and it absolutely is a calling. I love that word. And I find in the courses I facilitate that comes up on the first day when people talk about why they're there. They're like, I just feel so called to this work. And um, it's more like a, a ministry sort mm. of. Um, and I really feel called to the work because I just see a, a huge opportunity for reducing suffering at end of life. Um, you know, we, our culture provides us with such a skewed narrative around what death is. It's so embedded with fear, um, you know, and, and great heartache and great heartache is absolutely there. And there's so much grief to catch up with as one approaches death and after, but there's just so much more to the story. And, uh, I've had the honor of being, um, with people companioning is the word I like to use, um, at that very intimate time. And 
there's so much beauty and there's uh, the potential for so much connection and so much meaning and love, like the purest love. And, you know, it's definitely a world of both. Um, and I really feel like the other side of the narrative uh, needs to be heard. And we need um, this more balanced narrative um, to allow us to live into and to die into. So I see a huge opportunity for these conversations and for acknowledging the full narrative around death. So, Tracy, we're seeing um, there your your website. If people want to connect with you, they can check out endwell.ca. So, so who who hires you? Who reaches out to you? What prompts people to reach out to you? Is it is it people that have just I mean, I don't know why I immediately think of the person that is relatively young and they've just received a devastating diagnosis um, and 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 they just don't even know where to start and they're trying to process it. But you must see a thousand different scenarios. Yeah. Um, you know, there's really two points that people would reach out um, and look for help from a death doula. Um, the first is perfectly healthy people that really want to engage in end of life planning. Mm -hmm. And so there's a process that is called advanced care planning, where people are encouraged to consider what makes life worth living, consider their values, consider um, end of life wishes, and then um, appoint a uh, representative legally to be their voice if they cannot speak for themselves um, and have conversations with this person and their friends and family. Um, so this process of advanced care planning is something that all Canadians are encouraged to do. Um, many are well-intentioned and, and uh, you know, really want to do this planning, but very few actually reach out and get it done. The stats are pretty dismally low. I think it's around 10% of Canadians actually have this planning in place. Um, so that's, that's one touch point. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, the other point that people reach out to me is after a terminal diagnosis. And usually it's a mix of people that have the diagnosis, but most times it's families actually, where there's this sense of overwhelm and this need for additional support. So amazing. I, I will circle back to that because I have, I mean, I have, I have like 35 questions for all three of you so i don't know we're, we're going to run up against the clock here by the way may, may i also encourage all three of you to treat this as though we're out for coffee so if you want to jump in or, or or comment on something another one has said because i would imagine like sonia i mean there's probably you know there's obviously one major difference between the work that a labor doula and a death doula or an end-of-life doula would do i mean the very the bookends of life the, the 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 exact opposite ends of the spectrum but at the same time as as tracy speaks are you are you hearing similarities with the types of people that reach out or the reasons people reach out in some cases and maybe even the work that you do Oh, definitely. I think there there's this need for a more intimate experience, no matter how it unfolds. And as a labor doula, there has been moments, obviously, that we are celebrating and welcoming life, but also the passage of a passing or stillbirth or whatnot as well. Um, and so it really is supporting families through all of that. Um, it's a big part of what we do here is supporting families. Sonia, we're getting we're getting some some I hate to interrupt something technical going on. If you want to maybe just even lose the earplugs, unplug and just go with the computer mic so we can better hear you. Um, uh, so, Shannon, are you hearing are you hearing with regards to what Sonia is saying? I'm trying to determine what's what's the main like with regards to a labor doula and a postpartum doula. Would somebody hire both? How, how does that yeah. work? Or where's the difference? 
Yeah, absolutely. So a labor doula focuses a lot on the pregnancy and the birthing, um, the labor and birth itself. A postpartum doula generally comes in shortly after the birth has occurred and supports a family six to 12 weeks, sometimes beyond that, um, as they transition with a new family member. So often new parents, it just kind of helps. I say I'm a personal Google for people because I kind of take out the noise when people are looking for answers or looking for um, just seeking advice and things like that. And so, yeah, we it, it's there's a bit of a grieving period in the postpartum too. Families are grieving their previous life often before having a baby to then having a newborn and everything that they kind of had as their baseline has completely shifted. So it's kind of just an opportunity for us to walk through that with them and allow them to have those feelings and allow them to go through the experience in a raw kind of, you know, primal way um, without any kind of judgment. And yeah, it just allows that piece well, to move forward. You must, I mean, you must, I mean, all three of you, but, but Shannon, I'll ask you, I mean, I, I'll just ask the same question, all three of you, but Shannon, you must get, I would imagine, um, you know, people that have given birth uh, are experiencing some emotions that that you cannot possibly forecast or or brace yourself for. Um, postpartum depression is very much a real and common thing that impacts people. Um, I think a lot of times parents. I don't. I don't know if I say more so moms than dads. I don't know. I know as a dad, it it it, it can be kind of tough and and uh, like in the first few months because you're not really needed as much and you're kind of there to do what you can. But there's so much on mom in these circumstances you must get phone calls from people three in the morning babies screaming they feel like they're doing something wrong they don't, i mean you must get people you you get these supercharged phone calls i bet yeah absolutely and you never really know what i'm walking into when i'm walking into a shift um you know i can do a check-in on my way there but generally i walk in and i kind of don't sometimes it's a calm experience sometimes it's not so much um and just yeah to throw statistics out in Canada, currently, it's, you know, reported one in five mothers or birthing persons have uh, some form of a postpartum mood disorder, one in seven men. Um, and that's, again, reported. I would suspect that those numbers are actually probably higher. Um, it is. It's a very raw situation. A birthing experience can be very uh, traumatic at times or very triggering. I find parenthood also brings up a lot of feelings of the parent's childhood. They kind of have to sit with whatever, however they've been raised. And that kind of really comes to the surface. And so there's a lot of conversation and a lot of walking through kind of what that looks like. And then part of my role is to guide those people to the proper resources to get extra support. I'm not a medical provider. I can't diagnose anything. So but I am able to see red flags and be able to say, let's get you some more support with somebody who is tra more trained or more specialized in this situation. Okay. So let, let me put this one in front of Sonia because I'm gonna, I, uh, this is a confession. And I, I mean, no disrespect. I mean, no offense, but actually quite a few of my friends. I'm just going to tell you the truth because the show is called Real Talk. Many of my <laughs> friends have hired doulas and I've always been like, gutsy move like what if something <laughs> what if something goes sideways like i'm a son of a physician right so i like to, i would like to have you know i would like our birth room to have like eight ic like nicu nurses and i want to have three emergency surgeons and and is there is there is there kind of a changing understanding of of how doulas coexist or work with other health professionals do you understand the question i'm trying to ask 
totally. No, we, we actually bridge the gaps that exist in the medical system and we're there for that emotional support. So in the midst of things unfolding in a birth, say an unexpected event or scenario plays out, we're there with the family to support them emotionally through this experience and to ensure that they are getting the information that they need, that they know what their options are, that they know um, the questions to ask and really supporting that. So we don't ever replace any medical staff at, by all means. That's not our role or our scope of practice, but we're there to um, fill in those areas, especially the emotional aspects and the physical aspects of, you know, what kinds of positions might be helpful for labor progression or um, making sure that partners feel comfortable being involved in birth and holding that space to allow that intimacy to unfold between the both of them in, in a, a very public setting at times for people. Tracy, this is uh, has, how much did your uh, I, I feel I don't know why I'm double clutching on this question. I just feel like it just feels like a powder keg question because it's very it, this is really serious business. Medical assistance in dying is what I'm talking about. And I'm, and I'm talking about how I facilitated so many conversations about it. I understand some people have real problems with medical assistance in dying. I understand a, a lot of people credit legislation and accessibility to made for allowing their loved ones to experience a dignified and pain-free death. I feel like I've heard it all. How, how much has your business or your calling changed uh, since Canada has, has made medical assistance in dying more accessible? Yeah, it's absolutely impacted um, what I do. And just especially in the last year, the legislation is older than that. But in the last year, I've seen a real uh, increase in the amount of people. I think there's more stories, there's more experiences of people that have access made and as an end of life option. And uh, yeah, it's really about the people that approach me that have considered this and are, and are um, applying for it. Uh, just uh, really, my role in that case is really serving um, as these other um, women have so beautifully um, uh, talked about the idea of holding space for everything that comes up. So it is a very polarized, there's a lot of um, big feelings around medical assistance in dying. Um, and uh, it's a very difficult thing for people to navigate. I think um, people that choose it are pioneers in a sense. There's not a lot of people that have um, gone before them. So, you know, and I just, you know, I can't imagine what it would be like to consider such an enormous uh, decision at a time in your life when you're feeling so terrible physically and so much is up emotionally. So uh, it's complicated. And again, you know, modern medicine has you know, they've nailed it. They have looked after the medical side of things. The reason why the three of us do what we do is because we support the emotional and spiritual side of these um, liminal spaces, sacred uh, liminal spaces. So really my role in that is providing resources. Um, you know, most lo local government websites have excellent information or even the Canadian uh, website has the national uh, has national information on medical assistance and dying. And so just pointing them in the right direction and holding space for, for you know, all the big feelings that come up and really uh, encouraging communication, uh, facilitating conversations with those closest to people that are making this choice. 
Um, so they're supported by their people. Um, those are the types of, of things I found myself uh, doing when people approach me, um, you know, wanting to know more about medical assistance and dying. Tracy, what's what's something that pe- the you know one of the things that you help people with, counsel people with, educate people on that that most people might not expect. What, what's something that you do that in the context of, of someone's end of life journey that that might be a bit of an aha moment for men, many of our audience members when you mention it right now? Well, I think the biggest thing is is the, the stories. Like, I, I really think that people are really surprised when they learn what normal dying is. You know, we see it in movies. We hear about it in media. I mean, I have a lot of boys and they all play video games that, you know, just have an insane amount of violence and death. You know, it's all this fear-based narrative. I think when people realize, and, you know, I I think it's interesting that we're all here today, birth and death doulas and postpartum doulas. And I was considering like, what are the similarities? And I think when people really realize that, you know, normal dying. And I think it's important to acknowledge the dying that I'm talking about is a privileged dying. So, you know, it's, it's the the deaths are expected, there's support, there's care, and that there's many people on the planet that will not have this kind of generous, loving care as they die. Um, And this has been made apparent in the last year by COVID. And many people will die alone and addicted and no one there to notice they're gone. And my husband's a first responder. And so I hear a lot of this at our dinner table conversations. Um, and so, you know, the dying I'm talking about is, is different than that. But I think, you know, if we can compare birth and death, like I would, you know, we all, we welcome in birth and we, we know the expected outcome of, of labor um, but there's also a very natural way that, that the body shuts down and the body was designed to die. And I think when you start talking about death, which doesn't always happen because our narratives are usually medical narratives that are all about getting better. But if you can actually talk about what dying is, there are these progressive stages, um, like a pattern that ends in an anticipated outcome. And having given birth a number of times myself, um, and obviously I haven't died, so this is fool's advice, but I would argue that death is likely more dignified and comfortable than birth in many cases. So I think when people realize that it is predictable and, you know, there's certain physical signs that happen in a natural death, people get sleepier, they eat less, you know, there's this gradual withdrawal and there's a gradual withdrawal um, uh, emotionally too, um, that this people sort of cocoon inwards and there's spiritual changes that happen, you know, deep questionings, dark night of the soul and having visions or experiences. And, you know, I think when we can tell people this, they just go, oh, okay. And they think, oh, well, that's how my aunt died, but I just thought that was different. So I think people would be really surprised to hear um, how a lot of deaths are gentle and predictable and are opportunities for um, deep healing and connection and meaning making and love. 
you probably get this often, Tracy, like as you're speaking, first of all, I can see Shannon and Sonya are like connecting in big ways with what you're saying. And trust me, I have a ton of questions for you. And I want to talk about carrying people's emotions and processing the job. And I mean, geez, even even Tracy, with you sharing you know, your husband, a first responder, I mean, a, a first responder and a death doula around a kitchen table, probably like I don't know how much small talk there is. Maybe maybe you need a little more. Um, but but in all seriousness, and, and I want to ask you about working with people of faith versus versus whatever you'd call those without, you know, agnostic, you know, your agnostic clients or, or, or people that are on that journey. I mean, so much to talk about. We'll be back with our doulas in just one quick second. I want to remind you that these conversations are possible because we have an amazing team of Real Talk builders. They're on this journey with us, the journey of this show to ensure that we can continue to talk about things that matter in life, things with substance. And that includes the team at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. They're huge on family. Family time. They're a family-owned business, and they know that this is the time of year where families are looking to get outside and enjoy the great outdoors. So whether that means a new Ram 2500 to pull your ski boat, or whether that means the Jeep Grand Cherokee or Grand Wagoneer to get the family out into the backcountry, maybe your favorite crown camping spot, do it in a Jeep or a Ram truck from Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. You can find them online, check out their inventory, and remember, two dealerships working together means more choices for you at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. The teams at Dairy Queen are ready for you this long weekend over these next few days. This heat wave, nothing's better than a peanut buster parfait, a blizzard, a dilly bar. I'm absolutely torturing the team right now. We have none of these in studio. My most sincere apologies. If you're looking for something off the grill, they've got two cheeseburgers for five bucks, two double cheeseburgers for seven, uh, or like I pointed out, a quad for 14. No, that's a quad for seven. It's an octo for 14. An octo. Can you order the, can you call it the animal burger maybe? Can we steal that from? Aren't all burgers animal burgers? I mean, except anyway. Oh, Sarah Hoyles. Get your animal burger. At the Dairy Queens, they're, they're like, Jesperson, can you please get people to stick to the menu? Do you mind asking people to please stick to the menu? At the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens, and Baseline Road? No problem. I'm loving this conversation with our doulas. Uh, Shannon Sproul is a postpartum doula. You can check out what she does at yegpppdoula.com. Uh, Sonia Duffy, a labor doula at fullcirclebirthcollective.com. And Tracy Chalmers, an end-of-life doula or a death doula at endwell.ca. Shannon, how do you how do you process, may I ask a personal question? I mean, what, what you no doubt carry for people, some of the stress, some of the uncertainty, um, some, some of the uh, emotional... Um, uh, the word baggage sounds negative, but I don't mean it that way. But the but the emotional weight that you would carry as a result of walking with people on their journeys, how do you do it? How do you process it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that's something that has probably uh, changed over my years of doing it. Uh, personal boundaries is a big one, really making sure that I'm setting those. And, you know, when I leave my shift or my job that I, I, I am leaving it where it is. Uh, I do a lot of, you know, grounding activities before and after talking to clients. So I'm only in the headspace and holding that space for them. So I'm fully present for them. And then I can be fully present for my family or whatever else when I'm not in those spaces. But it's been a learning curve. And there are times in heavier situations where you're dealing with trauma 
or with uh, just hard birth outcomes that can be very heavy to carry. And it's just, it's part of the job. I'm very fortunate that I have an extremely supportive uh, team that I work with that I can debrief with. I've got an incredibly supportive husband and family tons of friends who are willing to let me process and talk if I need to. And so, yeah, it kind of just day by day goes. I've got, yeah, I'm, I'm well connected. I feel very fortunate for that. Hmm. Um, this is uh, like, it, it's, it's interesting really to think of, of how things have changed um, when it comes to the options that people have, Sonia, and when it comes to the, how, how families define what, what might, be an ideal birth scenario or setting for them. And obviously things can change and sometimes there might be an ambulance involved or whatever the case may be, but it, but isn't it neat to see that things kind of trend back to more simplicity? Maybe, maybe, maybe we're the way it was like 500 years ago. It seems like minus the medical technology, but people more and more people, it seems want to be uh, welcoming a new family member at home. It seems like more and more. I'm, I'm hearing more about maybe this is just anecdotal, but more water births. Uh, where, where is your business or where is the business of birth uh, trending? What are some of the interesting things you're keeping an eye on? Well, I don't know if water birth and home birth is actually a trending thing. Okay. It's you know, it's been something that we've been doing, you know, for a long time. Um, I think that there is a, a more desire for an intimate experience, one that, you know, people can feel that they're, you know, they have the people that they want around them and they can feel safe in their space and just kind of do what they need to do um, through the process of birth and their immediate postpartum. And so having choice of care provider, I mean, it isn't available for everybody, unfortunately. There just isn't enough. Um, well, there's a lot of a lot of barriers to people accessing the care. We only have a certain number of midwives to provide the service, and so it becomes really hard for people to get a midwife all the time to have more options in birth. But I think the trend would be being a part of the process more. You know, um, being a part of the decision-making process and such. I should I should mention, I mean, this is really neat. Uh, if I understand correctly, Sonia and Shannon, you're both working together, leading a new nonprofit called the Birth Society. Uh, is that right? Is, this is this is uh, providing sponsorships for underrepresented community members to to be able to diversify not just the doula community, but also to offer subsidies to families. Could could you tell us about that? Yeah, I could speak to that. Um, so, yeah, we started this about two years ago. We really recognized that the doula community wasn't it, it's not diverse uh, overall. And the reality is, is that if someone's seeking a doula, they have the right to feel visibly represented by somebody. And so we made the decision to start working towards uh, building a group, a nonprofit to basically provide funding, find funding and provide funding. So, yeah, underrepresented community members can take doula training so they can serve their communities. And because doula work is not it's not a health care, it's not a health service that's funded. Uh, a lot of families can't receive the support. And the reality is, is the families that often need doula support are ones who can't afford it. So if we can provide some kind of subsidies or, um, yeah, be able to provide that in some capacity and build the doula community to become more diverse and more actually truly representative of what our city looks like, uh, it's going to become a better profession overall. And the communities that don't have that support are going to be better well-connected. So we're looking at communities of newcomers and, you know, people who don't speak English necessarily don't know how to navigate the healthcare system. 
in, you know, Indigenous Birth Alberta is already doing some phenomenal work in bringing birth work back to, you know, what that culture looks like. And so, you know, we're big sponsors and want to, you know, work closely with them to make sure that we're funding their process and their projects hmm. um, so they can reclaim what they want to do. And so, I mean, so for acknowledging here, like j- just to say it, that basically it's like doulas are for the most part white and it's mostly white people that have been able to yeah. hire doulas, um, which I find interesting. Uh, I, well, I don't find that part interesting. I think that there have been, <laughs> there have been major barriers uh, to access to health services across the spectrum for millennia. Um, that's not what I find interesting, but what I, but what I would imagine, um, and Tracy, maybe I'll come to you first on this one, but I would imagine in birth and death, the concept of, it may have different names, but the tradition or the concept of a guide or a counselor through process of birth and death, there are probably cultural applications of that, no matter where you are in the world. Are there? I mean, when it comes to birth and death counseling and tradition, I mean, I would imagine that every culture has its own application in a way. Yeah, I mean, I would say absolutely. This isn't a new role. Um, You know, people are so shocked to hear, oh, end of life doula, death doula. But there's always been people in communities that have been, um, whether they stepped into or just naturally, maybe those that is just their natural gift is to be comfortable in these liminal spaces and be able to show up in a supportive um, way during these wild times of birth and death. But yeah, these were normally people that were just naturally part of the village or the community. And really, it's just been in like the last just under 100 years that we've become so disconnected from birth and death. You know, I mean, I'm sure we all have stories in our recent family history. I know I do of all my relatives back in Alberta, um, you know, living in that one room or, you know, that big farmhouse. And when people were dying, they would often be brought down into the living room and children would be present and see death as a natural part of life and family and um, friends and community would care for their dying and be there um, when people were birthing as well. And, you know, we've really become disconnected and we outsource our care now. So people typically die behind closed doors in hospitals or hospices. Um, Once people are dead, bodies are whisked off and, you know, funeral homes deal with bodies. And I think that, uh, you know, it's similar in the birthing realm. And it's really unfortunate because, you know, if we don't honor our entire human experience, we can't live, uh, I think, in right relationship um, to what's really important. So if we're not aware of death, if it's not part of our life, um, we really lose out. So yeah, I think uh, it's really nice to see this community led death care, people sort of wanting to be more involved families, communities. I think it's a really uh, healthy thing. And I think it's, you can feel this hunger, people really wanting to get involved. Hmm. Um, It's none of my business, Tracy. This is my subtle way of asking you um, to to, to divulge whatever you like, but it's none of my business of what what your belief system is or or, or whether or not you're a person of faith, as they say. Um, But I'd be curious to know how you I mean, the, the the passing of someone who believes that they are 
going to meet their savior and and join their family members that they've been missing for years. Someone that lost their spouse 15 years ago. They believe in heaven. They believe in eternal life. Um, it, that experience or perspective is going to be very different from somebody else who's also lived a beautiful, wonderful life. May maybe also lost their spouse 15 years ago and now believes that the the energy that you know they they will their body will give energy back to the earth and perhaps a tree will rise above them. And and there's so many different ways of processing what we do not know but how do you approach it if you have a client that is a person of very strong faith and then you have a client that's an agnostic and then you yourself personally reconciling all of this i mean that must just be is it a real challenge or how do you navigate that no it's not a real challenge at all because you know like these um my panel members have said it's all about me showing up grounded and open it's this idea of holding space for whatever is there. And, you know, if someone finds comfort in um, their traditional organized religion, then that's a plus. And I will say, isn't that amazing? That's so great that this comforts you. Um, it can work the other way too. People that have been very, um, you know, faith has been a big part of their lives um, can really question. It's about to be tested, right? <laughs> what actually happens when we die? Um, so it's really about holding space for whatever is. You know, I remember, I remember sitting with a man who was dying of ALS, and he was just such a bright mind. He was a professor here at a local university, and he loved to just sit and and talk. And uh, I remember him asking me point blank. He just he looked at me and he said. You know, I don't believe that when I die, I'm going to have, you know, 10,000 virgins. He goes, I just, I don't believe that. And uh, he looked at me and he said, what do you believe? And, you know, honoring the dualist spirit, it's not about me. Like I, I take off my cloak at the door and I walk into that space, just being present for what is. Um, and I can't give him that comfort. What I can do is I can hold space for his concerns, for his wondering, for his anxiety. And, you know, it's hard for us 21st century humans to understand that we don't always have to fix things. We don't always have to have the answers. We don't have to solve for these problems simply by witnessing people, by seeing people, by hearing people. It changes things. It absolutely changes things. So it's it was his process to go through. And even when asked point blank, I just looked him in the eye and I just said, my beliefs are very different from yours. Hmm. And I think there was like a little twinkle and he got it. But, you know, I, I can't people have to go through their own process. And and there's huge benefit for being there for people to do that and witnessing people. It absolutely changes things. There's such. This is not this is like an obvious statement, but there, there's just such in, in the rooms where all three of you practice, there's such energy, right? I mean, like how how do you I mean, how do you how do you quantify or describe the energy when a, when a new life enters a room? Um, how do you how do you quantify the energy that comes with a, a, a screaming child or an exasperated parent or the joy or the highs and the lows that a postpartum doula might might attempt to navigate the stormy waters? Maybe we call them, although I understand that's a little inherently negative. I don't mean to be uh, many moments of joy, too. And then the energy in a room when it when a life I was I was I was b b so blessed to be with my grandfather when he passed. And it, it it's like I. Oh, if I talk about it, I can start crying. I mean, just the energy in that room and like, 
whew, calling my dad and telling him, and I just, I just can't even, you know. And everyone, everyone, I guarantee that everybody that's listening to this is picturing their own family members and thinking of their own experience in these conversations, right? I think one of the things that I think we can all probably agree with is we really just meet the families and the people where they are, mm. you know. And that, and the reality is, is that's different every time you see them. And just like my day varies day to day and what happens, uh, it's the exact same thing when you're in these really raw, transformative moments in your life. And, you know, I think that that's just the, that's part of our role is to sit there and allow that space and those energies to move and flow and be okay with it and, and acknowledge and give permission for it to be there, whether we have answers or not. I love it. That feels like such a great way to end. Although I feel like Sonia, I'm stepping on your toes. I feel like you have something to say, Sonia. What do I, you know? What I want to do because because uh, Shannon and Sonia and Tracy, you've all been amazing and giving us your time and perspective. I, I'd really love to give you all a chance to sort of give us a last word um, to to wrap up a thought, maybe leave us with something here to consider. So, Sonia, why don't we go with you first? Okay. Well, you know, being a doula has been such an honor um, to be present and to be there. Uh, for families. And I think that sometimes people don't really understand all of the things that we do in what we do and how we do it. And, um, you know, this is definitely, especially in my case as birth, is something that people remember for the rest of their lives. And I'm sure impactful in other ways as well. And it just helps to get them off onto a good start. Tracy? Oh boy. <laughs> well, I, I, I thank you so much for, for having me. I think that, you know, these difficult conversations are hard to start, but they are absolutely life affirming. It's not a downer and they're connecting conversations um, about death. I, you know, I would hope that we can start talking to our kids about the cycle of life and birth and death. You know, the forest is a great place to start. Just, just, you know, start changing these narratives um, and changing the culture. It really does reduce fear when we pull these things, uh, you know, out of the shadows and and talk about them. And I guess I, I thought it would be fitting to end with a Francis Bacon quote that it's as natural to die as it is to be born. Mm. Beautiful. Beautiful. I love your idea of the forest. I love that this isn't age specific. I love that there's that recognition. Shannon, we'll give last word to you. Uh, yeah, I think that the biggest thing is that, you know, we're, we all are born and we all will die. And so this is for everyone. And I agree. I think, you know, involving children and all ages, like I always say, how do we make birth cool? Like, How do we make yeah. death cool? How do you make it something that we can talk about? Because it is the most natural thing. And so if we have these conversations and we make space for it and space for, you know, the guidance of it, uh, we're just, you're just a better, I think we're just going to be a better society and a better community open on a whole. Yeah. Such a great conversation. I'm really grateful to the three of you. I feel like you're three friends of mine, Shannon Sproul, Sonia Duffy and Tracy Chalmers. You can find them all online. Just check out the tweet we've sent out uh, earlier this morning about the show's lineup. Have a great weekend uh, to the three of you. Uh, enjoy the rest of your summer and keep up the amazing work, making a real difference in people's lives. Thanks so much, Brian, for having us. Yeah, you bet. What a conversation, Sarah Hoyles. Holy smokes. I feel like I feel like we could have had we, we could have done like three we could you could have done three separate interviews mm. each of the for an hour with well, each I, of those people. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I was kind right? of like 
I I battled with that. Yeah, I dueled because with you, that. You dueled with it because I mean you could sit there, you could talk to, uh, I mean, you could talk to Sonia, uh, the labor doula about. I mean, you know, I mean, you you would get especially if we promoted it ahead of time, you get a bunch of people expecting. You notice the language, by the way, too. Parents, uh, yeah, cor- correcting not moms and dads, uh, even within our own family, um, a family that that a beloved family celebrates Parents' Days, not Mother's Day, not Father's Day, but Parents' oh, Days. Yeah, that. it's beautiful. Um, and then you could talk to you could talk to Shannon. A postpartum doula about I mean think of how many questions you'd get from audience members or anecdotes people sharing their own stories the journey of 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 you know following the big day you know that postpartum journey I love that like what have we got ourselves into oh, yeah. like after the little one is born I remember bringing Wyatt home from we bring Wyatt home from the hospital and he's like and it's just this tiny little just this tiny human and it's still in the car seat, right? It's like infant car seat, which I've never driven so safely or more carefully in my life. Yeah. From the hospital to home. And then we put him down and we have we have the big moment where where Moses, the boxer, got to meet him. Oh. And Moses has been his best buddy. Um, and although Monroe, when she came on the scene, the lab, now she's trying to take over. She's trying to be the best buddy. But but regardless. And then so the, so dog meets baby. And so there's that kind of very special moment. And then there's this silence. And then it's like, now what? what? <laughs> like, I, I guess I'll take out the garbage or yeah, like, like just when life. Do, when like, does Wyatt go home? Yeah, oh, wait a minute. Like, yeah. Life starts. Life, it starts now. It's here we go. And that idea that it's like, these are all normal feelings. Yeah. I loved that about, yeah, getting like uh, being allowed, given permission to ask any question totally and then to get validation just to like oh yeah that's totally normal totally and, and then and then tracy the death doula yeah you know i love she like go to the forest talk to your kids you know remove these mysteries and i mean just fascinating stuff um brenda says short week still so many great conversations on real talk brenda thanks for being here for it if you like what you're hearing uh here then of course you can hit the like button on youtube you can give us a a five-star rating on your podcast provider you can share the content so other people can be sure to check out these conversations themselves if there's somebody that you know i mean who wouldn't benefit from from some of the conversations that we've been having this week we appreciate those of you that share our content Every Wednesday, we're so proud to partner with the team at Tourism Jasper to feature My Jasper Memories. And it's really catching on. It's catching on because each and every single week, more and more of you are sharing your Jasper Memories with us. I absolutely love this one. We were talking about camping last week. If you've missed any of our past features, you just go to jasper.travel slash realtalk. The hashtags are my Jasper and Real Talk RJ. And that's where this one came in. We want to lead off with this. This is absolutely beautiful. Uh, this is from Philip Turnbull. Philip says it doesn't get much better than canoe camping on Moline Lake. Hashtag my Jasper, hashtag Real Talk RJ. Check out these photos. I mean, these are unbelievable. Are you kidding me? Every single time. Look at that spirit island. I mean, these are amazing. These are, I mean, something tells me that Philip is 
knows his way around a camera. I mean, look at this. This photographer, unbelievable stuff. Sam, are we just we're just gonna steal these for our computer backgrounds, I yeah, think? Yeah, I'm drooling. For our desktop backgrounds. Th- this, look, this one's like, my favorite. I Whoa. feel like I can, and I know with apologies to those of you on the podcast, you can find Marge, uh, my Jasper memories, of course, on our YouTube page. This one I feel like I can I can hear this photo. You know what I mean? I feel like I can hear the water lapping up against that canoe. And Philip has actually been on our show. What? Yeah, he was the advocate for Alberta Parks. We talked about the Kananaskis. What? Pass. That's yeah, that guy? That's Philip. Oh, my goodness. The credibility just deepens and deepens and deepens. Fantastic photographer. Love it. <laughs> I wonder if Philip will take on this assignment hmm. like everybody else. Because in this week's My Jasper Memory, we're taking a look at, at the history of Jasper. But here's the deal. Past meets present. This is a a neat photo contest that Tourism Jasper is launching. If you think you have what it takes to recreate history, we're going to show you these photos in just a second. We want you to go to one of these four iconic Jasper locations, take a photo that mimics or recreates a historical image, and you could win a trip to the mountains. That's a two-night stay at the Chateau Jasper, valid until the end of May 2022. Blackout dates, you can read about all the details online. So a modern version of one of these four archive photos, and then, you know, you read the details on the website of how you can submit it. Hashtag my Jasper, hashtag real talk RJ. Sorry, this is a very selfish and important You know question. you cannot win. Oh! No, you cannot win. Sam, our apologies. You, you also cannot I, I win. I was going to enter, but all right, that's fine. Mostly because I plan on winning. No, okay, I can't win either. But let's take a look at these. I, I'm a huge on archive photos. We have archive photos all over. Look at this. Are you kidding me? You know where this is? You want to go recreate that photo? We'd love to see it. How about this one? Uh-huh. I've sat in Adirondack chairs observing that view before. What about this one? I love this. You know where that is. If you know, you know. And this one might, I mean, come on. This takes you right back. These archive, I mean, these are amazing. Every picture just tells such a beautiful story out in Jasper. Recreate it, and you could win a trip to the mountains. Check out jasper.travel slash realtalk for more. And don't forget, we would love to see your Jasper memories. Hashtag myjasper and realtalkrj. Thanks to the team at Tourism Jasper. Beautiful stuff. So we're talking earlier today about numbers and, and, and the show kind of got into high gear and we started moving. But I was telling you this morning that I woke up and I saw that there were numbers trending. And, and, and for the most part, the numbers that have been trending have been these heartbreaking ones, right? Kamloops, Indian Residential School, right? The, the, the 215, this number rocks the nation. 751, right? Cowessus, First Nation, Saskatchewan rocks the nation. But then I saw this other number trending and I realized very quickly that it had it had nothing to do with the story of reconciliation. It was a number. It was a decimal point that jumped out at me. And that's when I went, OK, hang on a second. Wait, oh, it's temperature. And I said, no way. you got to be kidding me. Forty nine point six. The number forty nine point six was trending internationally. And it still is across Canada as we speak, as we record this show, as we record this podcast on this June 30th morning. Writes uh, climatologist Scott Duncan. Let me fact check that. Professional meteorologist, rather, Scott Duncan. 
I didn't think it was possible, not in my lifetime anyway, 49.6 degrees Celsius in Canada. That's for our American friends, 121 degrees Fahrenheit. Scott says this is the story of the Canadian heat record that was crushed on three consecutive days. Get this by an unfathomable margin of 4.6 degrees Celsius, more than eight degrees Fahrenheit. He says this moment will be talked about for centuries. As you can see, this was in Lytton, British Columbia. Lytton, British Columbia established three national temperature records on three consecutive days, as mentioned by an unfathomable margin of 4.6 degrees Celsius. The previously held record was in the province of Saskatchewan, city of Saskatoon in the 1930s, to give you a sense of how long those records have stood. Fair enough. He said it's going to be talked about for centuries, but I'm like, until the next record is broken and we're seeing like consecutive yeah consecutive breaking of records all over the map um with our quote-unquote heat dome can i just say that i was excited that a professional meteorologist that is pointing out that the temperature hit nearly 50 degrees an all-time canadian heat record in Lytton, canada Describing the fact that he believes that this will be talked about for centuries gives me faith and optimism that he believes that humans will be here for centuries. Unless he means that the AI will be talking about it centuries from now because we've all created an environment that is totally unsustainable for human life. Yeah, I'm with that. Uh, that one. <laughs> and we laugh and we laugh so we don't cry. cry. This was an interesting map that I saw as well. Sam, do you mind popping that one up that shows the southern U.S.? You know, the one that I'm talking about. This was this was uh, from another. This was from a climatologist. You can find them uh, online. It was at Climatologist 49 was the source of this. Uh, this is a map showing historically places in the U.S. or Canada that have ever been ever as warm as Lytton, B.C., ever. I mean, in recorded history anyway. Now, we don't say North America because I suspect that the map of Mexico would probably have a whole bunch of of markers there. But as you can see, only Southern California, Nevada, Arizona, and it looks to be one incident in New Mexico. Uh, Those are the only places in the United States or Canada that have ever been that have ever seen a temperature of forty nine point six Celsius or higher. It's astonishing. Yeah. I just, man, I just think of the animals that cannot get out of the heat or yeah. people that are houseless. Like they cannot get out of the heat. I've seen a ton of people on social media and it doesn't matter where you're listening from. It doesn't matter where you're watching from. You can do this in your community. Uh, people donating uh, like on mass big, you know, uh, cases or crates of bottles of water to inner city agencies and things like that. And um, I don't know about you or like Sam, when you're out walking, uh, you, when you're out walking the pop or maybe you're even managing that different because you've got a long hair pop. Uh, but I've noticed when we were out there, people are putting like salad bowls, like I'm talking big aluminum bowls of water out at the end of their sidewalks. People are just being more. It seems like more considerate, more courteous. Have you been seeing it? Yeah, I've, I've definitely come across a few just sort of like place bowls when I'm walking. I've been trying to keep walks to like late at night after yeah. the sun goes down uh, or sometimes really early in the morning. Hilariously, Sophie still lays in the sun all day. I don't know why. She goes outside. <laughs> she has like one shady spot that she kind of goes in and out of and then yeah. she like naps in the sun and, and I don't get it. But Golden Retriever, right? Yeah, Golden Retriever Husky. 
golden retriever. Oh, wow. She's got a coat on her. Oh, yeah. A fur coat. A fur oh, yeah. coat. In the dead of summer. Yeah. We've, 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 got, we've got some short hairs here. So this is like a little bit, uh, maybe he, a bit of a different scenario. We've got, we've got the kiddie pool in the backyard that they spend a lot of time in. She but won't go in a kiddie pool. She'll drink out of it, but she won't go in she it. She won't go in it. I've actually, She's not a water dog. Interesting. Yeah, my dog, He, I'm, I'm tempted in renaming him. His name is Ranger, and I've thought that maybe I need to rename him as Wade. Oh, he, he just goes up to his knees. He will not. He was like, he does not. He, I cannot convince him that dogs can swim. He doesn't believe it. I've used treats. I've put a life jacket on him and yeah. tried to like haul him out. I've used toys. Nothing. One thing that I did notice, um, a friend of mine put a bowl out with water in it, with rocks in it. And she said for the bees and butterflies. So then, you know, because you know, when you leave a glass out, like you'll come back and there's dead bugs in it yeah but if you put rocks in it it'll allow them to get uh hydrated and not die in the process so and i've also been wow. i've been filling up my baby pool the baby pool that was for the dog that he won't use um just and putting rocks in it for birds i'm just like i cannot imagine where are they getting water right i guess there's the river in yeah, our city but like sure, but we're landlocked yeah these these types of um uh are we guilty of like do we do we make absolutely everything so serious all the time we do but sometimes stuff serious business i don't know it's like it's like you guys real talkers it's like the three of you you guys probably can't even just talk about like enjoying a patty or enjoying a sunny day all of a sudden you have to turn it into income inequity but i was like i was i'm serious i guess i'm making a joke about the fact that i can't ever joke about things uh in real life all i do is joke about stuff but but I like I saw, for example, the other day and I retweeted it. There's this guy, Mark Charrington, that does amazing work uh, in our city. He's like a, he's, a, he's just a guy. I mean, he, he does have a job, but he's, he, he just helps people. He's a guy that just helps people. And he was he showed a photo of like there's a dad. He's a single dad. He's doing his best that he can. You can see it. I retweeted it. Um, and this little guy has a has a, some health challenges and the heat exacerbates the health challenges mm. and makes them worse. And the dad wants an, a little apartment air conditioning unit. But on his on his age, his assured income, his government, you know, is, is it's a pittance. He can't afford air conditioning. He's just like, hey, you know, does somebody out there have an extra apartment air conditioner? And I was just I was like, that's one example of how this is so different. I mean, I, you know. I mean, I sit here and think, oh, it's so hot. Oh, I, I mean, our air conditioning has been just cranked this week. There's a lot of people that don't just walk over and crank the air conditioning. I mean, I don't know. I just, I don't know. Maybe this, maybe that's why we're here. Maybe, maybe we're here just to put little things on people's radar. Say, hey, while you enjoy this, or why are you doing this? Maybe think of this too. Oh, yeah, it's just made me think of the heat waves. Made me think. It's obviously got your brain churning too. Listening to the reports of deaths, heat-related deaths in BC is astonishing that they're being first responders are being run off their feet. They yeah. are, they, I was listening and um, there was a two hour wait for uh, ambulance response. So can you imagine that's, yeah, that's really scary. Yeah. It's really scary. It is. Uh, so think, Hey, think of others. You know, this is what we do. It's I feel like this is there's this community here. And, and uh, you know, I know that everyone can, you can think of ways to maybe that means go, going to check on the neighbor. Maybe there's an elderly neighbor that, you know, you're not necessarily sure if they have everything they need or whatever it is. Just a wellness check on your fellow humans over these next number of days. If, if you want to think bigger picture, if, you, if, you, if you're pursuing your organization is allyship or inclusion, I want you to check out powered.ca right now. That's P-O-W-E-R-E-D. It's Power Ed by Athabasca University. They've got a new microcourse on allyship and inclusion. 
And this is really great. Uh, all the way through, this is your last day to sign up for it at a discounted rate. By the way, a 10% discount using the promo code REALTALK10 on embracing allyship and inclusion. It takes about six to eight hours to complete, and it gets you pointed in the right direction. If you as an individual or your organization wants to better understand what allyship looks like, you want to better facilitate or manifest a spirit of inclusion in your workplace, PowerEd is a great place to start. Realtalk 10, the promo code at PowerEd. We also want to remind you, we know that so many of you are going to be out in your outdoor spaces. And and maybe it means if you're like me, you're looking around going, that could be better. That could look better. I sure wish that could get redone. But, you know, when am I going to do this? And oh, oh, and I don't have the skill or the knowledge to do it. Go to landscapeedmonton.ca. Mike and the team at Eden Landscaping for more than 20 years have been earning the trust and return business of their clients as they bring your outdoor space to life. More than 20 years of on-the-ground experience working with ultra-modern homes, infields. Uh, what about what about those homes, those, those homes where curb appeal is the difference between the house that's for sale three doors down and the house for sale just around the corner? Eden Land. Landscaping could help your house sell weeks before the others, and you're going to get your investment back. LandscapeEdmonton.ca is where you'll find them. If you're going to be hitting the grill this weekend, flexing your muscles and your license to grill, why not make sure that you've got Alberta products on that grill from Alberta grown fresh produce through to Alberta proteins, including some wonderful vegan and vegetarian options. Friesen Brothers has you covered. Plus, they've got BC Cherries province-wide right now. There's 16 stores. BC Cherries are the best in the world. And supporting local, supporting Canadian is huge for Friesen Brothers. You'll find them in 16 Alberta communities, including that beautiful brand-new store in South Edmonton. Friesen Brothers is Alberta-grown and Alberta-owned. And we want to remind you that the team at Local Waste, when we talk about family-owned business, these guys have been rolling out waste management solutions for their partners, their clients, and their customers for more than a quarter century. Family-owned the entire time. Integrity matters to them. And that's why they have a transparent business process with all of their customers. They tell you, if you don't feel like the deal's working, they want to find a solution. And if you're locked in a contract with one of their competitors and you just want out, Local Waste will provide the resources to get you out of that contract. You can call Mikkel, Lauren, or Chris. You'll find all the details at localwaste.ca. Each and every week on our final day of our broadcast week, this week it's a Wednesday, the team at Local Waste also gives us an opportunity to get things off our chest. It's a little something we like to call Trash Talk! All right, Maurice kicks us off this week, says, honestly, how hard is it to refill the ice tray after you dump it out? Yes, family members who are probably watching right now, I am using our favorite program, Real Talk, to speak directly to you through Ryan Jesperson's mouth. This happens every time you empty the ice tray, but you don't take the five seconds to fill it up again with water. And then here's old Maurice. It's 38 degrees outside, working up a bit of a sweat to get some yard work done so everybody can relax together on July 1st in the freaking ice tray empty. I don't leave empty toilet paper rolls on the dispenser. I don't leave empty cereal boxes in the pantry. I don't return your Jeep with the gas tank empty. And I sure as heck don't leave you with an empty ice tray in the middle of a record-smashing heat wave. That's just... 
Cold, says Maurice. Nicely played. This one from Gerald Logan, who says, In 2020, the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board delivered an annual return of 12.1%. AIMCO delivered a return of 2.5%. Can we please talk about this? If we create an Alberta pension plan, I will opt out. This is also why ATRF needs to be given back to the board. AIMCO's a failure, even to my amateur investor eyes. That from Gerald. How about this one from Sharon, who says, imagine you had a bang-up summer backyard barbecue party planned, and then your neighbor suddenly lost one of their loved ones, and there was grief and funeral arrangements next door. A raucous party with fireworks and face paint might not be the most tasteful thing to do. If you cared about your neighbor, you'd probably bring over casseroles and provide support. Then imagine you found out it was your grandparents who caused the death of their loved one. What would you do then? Even more inappropriate to hold your party. Then you found out that your grandparents caused the death of the loved one in order to provide you with the house that you live in. Now what do you do? Canceling the party is the bare minimum of showing respect. That from Sharon. How about this one from Devin, who says, with these latest discoveries, we reflect on our country's history and look inward at our own viewpoints, but I'm wondering when it's time to go directly after the Catholic Church and the actual priests and nuns who actually perpetrated these abuses. From my perspective, says Devin, it appears as though there were serial rapists and possibly murderers running rampant in these schools. How else do you process the math on the unmarked graves? He says, I'm talking about some Something along the lines of the Nuremberg trials. We need to hold these bastards accountable. He says, while the red paint and the church burnings are clearly describing how victims feel, I think a few gallows may be appropriate as well. That from Devin. And we'll wrap up with an email from Ronnie who says, fireworks exploding over dead children? Talk about shameful. I'm looking at you, Calgary and Edmonton. Put down your Canada Day pancakes and listen. Consider the families, children, lives annihilated in the creation of this country. Celebrating Canada Day celebrates colonization, oppression, and genocide against Indigenous peoples. When we shoot off fireworks and get all party-hardy, we fail to acknowledge this genocide and that it's ongoing. Don't let me hear you talk about your disappointment. That's privilege. This isn't cancel culture. This is a reimagining. And if not now, then when? St. Albert's reimagining. So is Fredericton and Victoria, B.C. Don't even think of claiming you're an ally if you support fireworks. That that's just your performance. That from Ronnie. You can send us an email to trash talk anytime. Talk at ryanjesperson.com is where it's at. No matter what you do tomorrow, we're eager for your perspective and we'll be back at it live next Monday, July 5th at 830 Mountain Time. We'll talk to you then, everybody. See you soon.